Hi, I'm Tristan Miller, and you're listening to Positive and Negative, a podcast about the intersectionality between mental health and the arts. Today on the program, I have podcaster, actor, and gelato chef, Lindsay Nelson. She runs a great podcast over at the Scavengers Network called Historical Hotties. I We talk about her experience with post-traumatic stress disorder, being homeschooled, and how that affects your mental health and how you create things. Here she is talking about coping with post-traumatic stress disorder. That crisis counselor did say, every time you start to feel better, your brain is going to feel comfortable releasing a little bit more of the trauma that it's been protecting you from, and so it's going to feel like a setback but it's actually progress. And eventually there's going to be nothing left that your brain has been, it's going to have let out all the poison basically. And you will be, you know, obviously PTSD is a thing that stays with you forever, but mine is not active in the way that it was for years. You know, my brain has kind of gotten out all of the stored trauma (laughs) that I've dealt with it. And now there are obviously things that will always make me feel a little bit, you know, uncomfortable, but it isn't like an active conditioned in the way that it was at the beginning the music is done by billy conahan it is to be or not off of the album leaping with intent to fly you can find that on itunes soundcloud spotify and bandcamp this podcast is made possible by my patreon you can go to patreon.com slash tristan j miller for early access to unedited versions of these episodes along with a myriad of other content that I make. If you're interested in seeing me do stand-up, you can go to tristanjmiller.com for my tour dates. All right, let's get to Lindsay. I, I was doing a little bit of research, and you are listed as an actor. When did you start doing that? I mean, I've been acting uh, for at least personal enjoyment and stuff since I was <laughs> seven. I got involved with community mm-hmm. theater in the town that I grew up in. Um, I was acting as my only profession for a few years in my early 20s. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was about three years where you. it was the only <laughs> thing I did for a living. So that's you know you're doing you're doing better than me so congrats on that (laughs) well not not so much anymore unfortunately but uh but yeah Uh, what made you stop um it was actually my ptsd um ah it was incredibly hard to uh audition um at the peak of it like right after i have ptsd from a sexual assault And uh, it was like a couple months right after where I barely left the house. And then when I did start going again and I started to try and get back into working, you know, to be a good actor and to audition well, you have to make yourself vulnerable and Mm -hmm. you have to put yourself up in front of people in a way that my brain was completely not capable of doing when the PTSD was like at its peak. So. So you stopped doing that and then you pivoted to podcasting, right? Yeah, well, it actually, not being able to audition and act for a little while um, got me into writing first, which I'd always wanted to do. It was always something that I saw myself doing in the future. And as a woman auditioning for things, I got incredibly frustrated at the kind of parts available for women. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But it was always uh, 
something I saw myself doing like off in the future when I was somehow miraculously like ready to write. And <laughs> because my, my main creative outlet that I've been doing at the time, which was acting, I wasn't able to do at the time. It kind of made me start writing, which, um, you know, was definitely a, a, something that I really needed at the time. And I was glad something kind of, not that obviously, but glad something kind of pushed me into finally starting to do so. Yeah. And then yeah. podcasting after that. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Uh, what, what sort of things were you writing at the time and are writing now? Um, I mostly write plays. Uh, I have taken some stabs at like graphic novel series and stuff, but none of those have ever um, made it to, you know, <laughs> any kind of <laughs> publication. Um, but sure. mostly I write plays and mostly I tend to write uh, dark comedies. So I wrote one play about a group of suicidal late teen early 20s who all take a tour of the afterlife it's basically um you know it was Dante's Inferno but mm -hmm. um <laughs> I was having a conversation with uh my dad's half of the family is Mexican Roman Catholics and Catholicism mm -hmm. has always been very interesting to me as somebody who never I'm not personally religious and I never practiced it but was around it a lot as a kid on my dad's side and uh just had the whole idea that um one of the definitions of hell, especially in Dante's Inferno, is that it's the only place in the universe that there's no presence of God, um, where, like, you feel his presence anywhere else in the universe and you don't in hell because he just doesn't exist there. But also hell is ordered according to God's morality, which I find interesting mm. because, like, <laughs> if it's the mm -hmm. only place he doesn't have any presence, why is it... You know, the levels of hell reflect the gravity of sins. The deeper you go down, the more tormented you are. The devil has expressed the thought that, you know, sin is his art form. So if it, if the devil was really in charge and not God, wouldn't the deeper levels of hell get nicer instead of worse? Yeah. And the bottom level yeah. of hell, circle of hell, be like a private members only club for the people who really <laughs> elevated the devil's art form in life. So that was sort of yeah. the premise behind that play. <laughs> well, that's fun. Stuff like that, like dark comedies. I did one, too, that was about uh, was a very millennial expression of a bunch of people in their late 20s. <laughs> who were all still working at a movie theater. And uh, mm -hmm. the movie theater was closing down because of the 08 recession. It was going bankrupt. And they all felt bad enough about having a job that was only supposed to be like a high school, college job in the first place still. And then that was going away. So it all happened in like real time on their last night of working at the movie theater. Where have these been performed? Oh, just really small local theater groups in Orange County. <laughs> right on, right on. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. And when did you start podcasting? And when did you start getting into podcasts? I started getting into podcasts when... Um, so my day job is I'm a gelato chef. And mm -hmm. so I'm in a kitchen by myself for hours every day. And I started really getting into podcasts because as much as I enjoy books on tape, I, I'd get... The story would either distract me from the work or the work would distract me and I'd miss part of the story. Mm -hmm. And I was a big NPR fan. And so a lot of NPR shows were very early in the field of podcasting, of putting them up as a podcast as well. And I really liked that because it didn't have to be like listening to the radio at the right time to hear shows I really liked, like This American Life. Um, and so I started listening to podcasts. And once I started listening to NPR podcasts, I started just exploring podcasts in general. 
And I listen to upwards of like, <laughs> because I do it while I'm working, I listen to anywhere between 20 and 40 hours of podcasts a week. Oh, oh my gosh. I know. You're, you're keeping it strong. <laughs> God bless you. Yeah. So, uh, so when I started getting doing that, I started obviously getting interested in making one of my own, mm-hmm. um, as basically with any medium I really admire, and there's any possibility I could make some of my own. Um, and I had uh, Whitney was also kind of interested in the idea. My sister, who is also my co-host on my podcast, and so I had kind of um, an idea about doing historical hotties and not fully formed, but just the first kind of idea. And I called her up about it and we discussed it and, uh, she was really into the idea and we started doing it and now it's been three years. (laughs) Nice. Nice. And you said the name of it, which is historical hotties. What's the premise of it? So the premise is we go through different categories of historical figure, like anything from opera divas to computer engineers. And, Mm -hmm. um, my sister and I and our guest hosts, if we have any, and Tristan, you've been a guest host on our show. Yes, it, yes, I have. Uh, in a very fun episode. Um, and we pick a person from any point in history, as long as they're dead. We've decided that that's how they qualify as historical, as if they are no longer with us. Um, but from any point in history in that category that we personally think is the most attractive, and then we debate them in four categories. They're mental attractiveness, physical attractiveness, social impact, and je ne sais quoi. <laughs> that is yeah and having been on it it's a really fun light show it's very it's, it's very good very palatable thank you yeah we wanted to make history approachable because i've always been a big history nerd in fact for a while i was a living historian professionally <laughs> oh really and uh i always thought history was very fun and interesting and but people who only know it through like a school context and stuff tend to think of it as either boring or intimidatingly inapproachable, or both. And the goal of Mm -hmm. historical hotties was to take historical figures and get you to realize that they were, like, actual people with, you know, hobbies and quirks and crushes and everything like that. So they might have done amazing things, and a lot of them that we talk about have, but that they're also just humans. Um, And we definitely try to highlight, because in America we've gotten the great white man version of history through official sources, that there are tons of women and minorities and queer people who have made history just as much as as anybody else earlier in the the interview you mentioned the reason you couldn't go out on auditions which is that you experience a, a sexual assault how did that come about to the level you're comfortable discussing it sure yeah um so i was actually <laughs> Uh, I was working as like a, a haunted house monster okay. and I was um, in a room by myself, which is, I mean, I don't know to go in the whole history and politics of the thing and I don't necessarily <laughs> like name the place or whatever, but it's a pretty big one. Yeah. And um, just they changed some of the rules that year and being a monster was always something that you could get a little beat up. People just have like a fear mm-hmm. response. And I never knew anybody who got mad at, you know, somebody who you genuinely scared them and they flailed and elbowed you in the, you know, 
or whatever. <laughs> you can always tell when it's people genuinely afraid. But also because haunt monsters have this thing where you've created an us and a them category. You've dehumanized people by putting them in like masks and makeup and costumes. And this is an indictment of haunted houses in general because I'm a very pro haunted house person to this day. But um, <laughs> you'd get a lot of people using it as an excuse to be violent. Um, yeah. And for... A set of reasons, monsters aren't supposed to be in the room by themselves, but because of a weird break schedule and everything, I was in a room by myself. And this group of five guys came through who were all... Some of them were on drugs, and some of them were just being, you know... Clearly, this is not unusual behavior for them when they did it, and they made a stupid pass at me, and I kind of quip insulted them back and kept going, and it just escalated to... um, getting attacked and beat up and assaulted by this group of guys. Now, they were all arrested, so. What was the process like after that, like coming to terms with that in the immediate and also now how many years later? Uh, It's a full uh, 12 years since that happened. So I was, um, yeah, it's... The immediate, it was very, it was very strange because for the first like two weeks, I was not really fully acknowledging what happened to myself or to other people. I talked about getting beat up more than the Mm -hmm. like getting sexually assaulted. And, you know, I quit immediately after that. So, um, you know, to most of like my friends and family and stuff, they just thought that I quit because... They already knew that you could sometimes get kind of hurt being a monster. Both my sister and I have done it, and my mom was against it both times. Um, Yeah. And uh, I don't know. It was in this weird sort of frozen denial state for a couple of weeks. And then when I really let myself sort of start to try and think about it and process it, and it just, um, it's incredibly overwhelming PTSD is basically your brain creates this. So you were in a situation that your brain read as life threatening. And so it records every detail of what was happening around you in that moment in case that is evidence again in the future of danger. Right. So it's part of your lizard brain that's (laughs) if you were walking along the river and you almost get killed by a lion that it notices all of the smells and sights that are around so that it can alert you in the future before that there's a lion there and you might die. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but in modern context, there can be a lot of incidental things around that just don't really have anything to do with being in danger that your brain now associates with danger um, and sends you into this whole panic mode uh, and it just basically, PTSD is a state of hypervigilance all the time. Mm-hmm. And your brain is telling you you're not safe, even when logistically you are totally safe. So I would be out trying to, you know, doing something like grocery shopping or whatever. And I would like smell a cologne that was the same as one of the guys or something. And then it would send my brain into this panic spiral where it'd be like, okay, you're not safe here. You have to, there's too many people you have to leave. So you'd leave and you'd get into your car and it would say, you're still not safe. You have to get somewhere safer. So you lock your car and you drive home and then you're in your house, but then your brain says you're still not safe. So you 
lock all the doors and then your brain says you're still not safe and then you get in your room and and basically you could sit in the middle of a circle of bear traps with a shotgun and your brain would still be telling you that you haven't done everything possible to make yourself safe. Um, and it, uh, it has lots of physical manifestations, like lots of mental conditions do because you, you're under so much stress that your body gets tight all the time and you get achy and you can't sleep properly. So your body can't recover from things and the worst insomnia for like the first year. And now I appreciate nothing so much as like a <laughs> real solid long night sleep um, mm -hmm. because insomnia just amplifies everything when you can't sleep, your body can't recover from anything. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really intense. And one of the things about it that is that a lot of people's intuitive responses to me were bad for it. And because I was inside it at the time, I couldn't articulate that. There was all this stuff that I saw after the fact that now I could be much better about helping people <laughs> to uh, interact with me at the time, but at the time, everything that would, people would try to do to help would just make stuff worse a lot of times. And it's a really unfortunate bad cycle that is really difficult on everybody around somebody who has PTSD as well as the person who has PTSD. Mm -hmm. Like what sort of behaviors were those? It's just things like your brain. Um, when people try and comfort you, a lot of times they touch you, which is a way yeah. that usually human bodies are comforted. Um, you know, mm -hmm. like somebody hugging you or something or like, but when your brain is on a hypervigilant alert thing, somebody touching you amplifies it incredibly. And especially somebody touching you that you don't expect. Like if you can't see them or they don't declare what they're doing before they do it, that's a really big thing when somebody's having an intense PTSD attack is not doing anything that they don't know is coming. So even just moving in a room or something that you announce mm -hmm. anything that you do before you do it is very helpful. But that wasn't a thing I was in a position to articulate at the time. Right. And how did you learn to articulate these things? Did you go to therapy? I did go to therapy. Um, I am in therapy now, different therapy. I went to like a women's health crisis center um, for a little bit mm -hmm. afterwards. Unfortunately, I did not find, um, you know, therapy, you have to you have to shop for the right person that you click with. It can be incredibly helpful, but with the therapist that's right for you, you know, and mm -hmm. because I was just I didn't have insurance or anything at the time and I was going to like a women's health clinic and I just got assigned to the person that was there. And I'm sure she was like great in a lot of respects, but she wanted me to do I wanted coping mechanisms and she wanted me to, I don't know, uh, she kept saying that I was trying to uh, control too much of it. And the more you control PTSD, the worse that it gets. And that you have to like just let a PTSD attack happen. That you can't try and mm. stop it. Because the more you contain it, the worse it will get when you eventually have it. And you will eventually at some point have to have it. Like when you start that cycle, you have to play through it. And I totally understand that. But also I was looking for like if I am at my job, I can't just go into a room and like have a freak out for 40 minutes and then come back, you know? Um, yeah. There are realities that have to enter into that. And uh, also stuff like she wanted me to not think about anybody else's feelings at that time. She was like, you are in more crisis than almost than like anybody around you. So you have to worry about yourself first and worry about their feelings 
uh, not worry about their feelings at all, basically, that they have to cope mm-hmm. with that because, like, you are coping with more. And I was like, <laughs> I am not going to intentionally do things that I know are going to hurt people around me. I already feel bad for how much this is impacting the lives of people around me. Um, I understand that there are certain things in which I can not help that and that, you know, I have to, but I wasn't going to, there was times when I just like wanted to get in my car and drive away and not tell anybody what I was doing and just go somewhere to get out of everything. And the state I was in, that would have significantly scared people. And I wasn't going to do that, you know? Um, so it was that kind of thing. The one thing that she did tell me that has to this day been incredibly helpful (laughs) is that like the way your brain deals with trauma is that every time you sort of reach a new level of processing it, your brain is going to feel that it's safe to let a little bit more out. And so it's going to feel like a setback. It's going to feel like you're back to square one or whatever, but you're really not. Your brain has gotten to a new comfort space that it's going to feel like you can handle a little bit more and process a little bit more. And eventually there's going to be nothing left to process. But for a while, it's going to feel like every time you get better, you get worse again. Um, Mm -hmm. that was incredibly helpful because that was very true, but knowing that in advance of it happening really helped me frame it differently. Yeah. So, um, I I didn't, I only did that for about four months there because like I said, it didn't really click with the therapist, although I do appreciate the help and Mm -hmm. especially that, (laughs) um, I am a big nerd. And one of the things that helped me the most was actually neurologically understanding everything that was happening. Um, Uh Because understanding the process that your brain is going through really helped me understand that it was a process and it wasn't, um, you know, the whole process of treating PTSD is turning what's called a hot memory into a cold memory, um, which is a memory that you can think about without reliving because it's a danger memory that's set with adrenaline whenever you get near it and like, like I said, something stimulus in the environment reminds you of it, or you just think about something, or you're trying to talk about it, your brain basically starts reliving it again. And that's where you get like flashbacks and auditory and like olfactory hallucinations and stuff of like the things that were happening at the time Mm -hmm. that whatever was traumatic happened. Um, And just understanding all of the neurological processes of that really helped me, um, get a little distance from it, like when it was happening and understanding that it was like a thing that had to be played through and you had to get to the point where your brain could think about that memory without reliving that memory. So. Yeah. And you mentioned the desire for coping mechanisms. Did you ever receive any from this person slash uh, what have you figured out works for you? Um, Well, I... Luckily, I mean, one of the things is just like talk therapy and processing that memory and getting, you know, distance on it. PTSD is something that, especially with treatment, gets significantly better over time. So these days, it's like very rare that I have a PTSD um, triggered nightmare, which was a big problem for me. There was lots of nightmares and night terrors. Obviously, part of where the insomnia was coming from (laughs) is uh, Mm -hmm. um, or getting triggering PTSD attacks, which is incredibly rare for me now and I have much much more distance when they're happening um so some of it's just like time and processing it also understanding it mechanically for me there is because your body gets flooded with chemicals like adrenaline and cortisol neurotransmitters when you're going through a stress attack 
in certain instances, doing something physically exercising, uh, like running or something, can be incredibly helpful for that to help it kind of move through your system to use those chemicals that are there to like help you run away or fight something and, and actually like get rid of them. You have to be careful with that, though, if anybody's listening has PTSD, because depending on where you are, something like running can make panic worse um, mm-hmm. because you will feel like you are running from something. Um, yeah. So doing something that that works for you, like, and, you know, what time of day it is or anything else can help. Uh, That was definitely helpful for me to just kind of work the chemicals through your system faster. And then, yeah, just kind of trying to go through the process of um, talking about it enough that you could talk about it without it triggering things. And, um, you know, as, like I said, you get better in your brain, release different parts, like, processing different aspects of it like obviously in our culture there's a lot of associated shame and guilt and stuff with things like sexual assaults now obviously mine was in a position where I was at work so (laughs) a lot of the Mm -hmm. accusations hurled at people who get sexually assaulted were not applicable to me I mean except that unless you said that the job itself was one that I should have known better than to take but as far as like where I was what I was doing if I was drinking how I was dressed anything like that um, is kind of removed from the equation for me, but there's still an incredible amount of um, shame and stuff that our culture associates with that. Also just the fact that like, I, (laughs) I am a very sarcastic person. I've always been a very sarcastic person, but trying to get to things like, um, you know, part of what started escalated the attack was that they made a gross come on and I did a sarcastic put down back mm-hmm. um, was feeling like very inhibited in like responding to people in a way that I would have in the past because you know your brain being scared that that like provoked the reaction or feeling responsible for it in some way because I did that obviously five guys do not just decide to <laughs> attack somebody because of like like there's a lot of other things that already have to be going on for them for them to move to violence that quickly <laughs> from Mm -hmm. like one slam but you know there's just stuff like that that you don't realize that you got hung up on when it happens until you really sort of start to unpack it as you try and work through it so you 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 said it's been less and less over the years but it clearly got in the way of you pursuing acting has it gotten in the way of anything else you've uh done yeah, like I mean, it, it majorly whatnot. impacted my life for sure. And it happened mm-hmm. in my early 20s. And so there is part of me that still feels like it derailed a lot of things. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't able to act for years. And now with my job situation, I'm not able to act as much to, like just because of my job doesn't really um, have the flexibility to do theater as much and definitely not film and TV. Um mm-hmm. So I I do kind of miss that, you know, I feel like I could get back into it now, but it like I never finished college and stuff. Um, And there was because I basically existed for like two years afterwards, solidly. I was not super functional. I mean, like I had a I had a job at a restaurant and stuff, but I didn't really do anything that involved crowds or groups of people. Um, The first year for sure, I was basically like a recluse. So, mm-hmm. 
um, except for like a couple of close friends who had been friends previously. Uh, I didn't really have any kind of uh, life. It was just being in a constant state of trying to cope with like hypervigilance for like a year. And then there was another year before that, before I really started kind of feeling comfortable putting myself out into social situations again. And um, it was probably about three years before I tried to do any kind of dating again. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, how's that impacted your your romantic life? You could go into it's, more detail. It's definitely had an impact on it. Um, there are... <laughs> I mean, I am, like... I was already, like, a late bloomer in a lot of ways, for sure. I had sure. a thing with my hormones. Um, I have PCOS, which is, like, a, a polycystic ovarian syndrome mm-hmm. that meant that I was not producing the right level of hormones um, a lot when I was younger. So until I started taking birth control to actually help correct my hormones, um, I didn't have like a regular amount of, or regular is like a terrible word, but you know, I didn't have a lot of Mm -hmm. like a very high sex drive or anything like that. So I didn't even start dating until I was like 20. And then this happened Mm. (laughs) a few years into that. And it basically took me really off the table romantically for probably four to five years. So I'm definitely behind in the like relationship. It's left me in a state where it's always been a thing in dating since then, because even now that I think I'm at a very good place with the actual PTSD stuff, it put me so much behind other people that people get weirded out about like my lack of long-term relationships or anything like that, because I didn't really do any of that in my twenties. Mm-hmm. And between that and then also being a recluse, you you seem like you've had a pretty isolated life I don't know, for a number of years. And did that leave, lead to any sort of depressive um, episodes? Yeah, I've definitely had some issues with feeling lonely and, and isolated. I am... Um, I've always been sort of a a weird person. I was homeschooled <laughs> and so but I've always Wait, really, really loved community. Like that's one of the things I've always really loved about theater is the way that theater mm-hmm. is such a unique kind of bonding experience. Um cuz you're all making this thing together and you're all like depending on each other out on stage and stuff in this way that was always really great. But I am also a person who has never uh Like, I didn't go to a normal high school or anything, so I've always been kind of, like, a fringy, weird person (laughs) (laughs) in a lot of things. I can relate. And that definitely exacerbated uh, from the PTSD that made me very reclusive, and I've had some difficulty with feeling too isolated um, in my life at at certain times, absolutely. How have you pushed past those feelings and, like, tried to find some balance there? Well... I have always been a person that uh, liked myself and I don't have, I think one of the things about being alone is that, I mean, you have to like yourself as a person. You have to be comfortable with Mm -hmm. your own company. And that definitely makes being alone um, more of a, I don't know. I do, I am an introvert. And so I've always liked time by myself, but then you can realize that you're getting, too much of it, you've fallen into patterns where you aren't pushing yourself to interact with people enough. And then, 
you know, the loneliness kind of sneaks up on you. So definitely trying to do things like book clubs and whatever that just get me out interacting with people more because I really do love it when I do it, but I can have, you know, some reluctance to get out there and engage with people at the same time, you know, so I have to like push myself to get out and do it. And then I'm really glad that I did when I, when I do do that. You mentioned you were homeschooled. Um, so was I. Oh, really? And yeah, yeah. I was like, wait, what? Yeah, I was. And (laughs) I, I I found that once you started socializing more, like when you, when I went to, I went to a public high school part-time and I went to, uh, you know, a conservatory and once you started interacting with the general public for me it was a huge source of anxiety did you feel similarly um I mean anxiety for sure I've always felt uh like there's lots of great aspects of like I never had real strong effects of peer pressure or anything right because I was never in a (laughs) big enough peer group we were always part of homeschooling groups but you meet Mm -hmm. like once a week you know and stuff and we did get a lot of friends out of that but I do feel like I did not learn social norms in the same way which has good aspects in that like I've always been very strong in my own opinion I've always been like you know free to think unconventional things uh, Certainly about the way that society views women, I have felt very little constraint by, obviously constrained mm-hmm. in the way that the world still feels that and, you know, tries to impose that externally on me, but I've never felt very pressured to meet, like, beauty standards or anything. But at the same mm-hmm. time, I don't have an ease in social interaction in the way that people who grew up in a much more heavily socialized environment or something like a school where you had a hierarchy you had to deal with and stuff do a lot better at sort of... <laughs> nonverbal social cues and stuff like that. Um, So there's definitely sometimes where I feel like an outside observer, like I get very anthropological in social situations (laughs) where I try and like, you know, I'm observing and witnessing social patterns without really feeling like I am fully able to engage in them or that I'm like not very good at them. Sure. Which definitely, you know, can have some stress associated with it yeah do you think that exacerbated the post-traumatic stress disorder in any way Mm. I don't I don't know I mean I think it made me feel more self-conscious when I was trying to get back into things like when I tried to start socializing again and when I tried to start dating again when it was never something I felt particularly skilled at in the first place that probably Mm -hmm. made me feel more anxiety about trying to get back into it I don't know that it made me feel more um detached or different from people uh but yeah I don't know in some ways I think um PTSD gave me a lot of empathy for people Mm -hmm. in certain ways, having to figure out what was going on with me and the best way to deal with it and how a lot of people's intuitive responses to how they wanted to help me or make me feel better were not helpful with the case of PTSD where they might've been with other kinds of um, struggles in somebody's life or whatever. Um, I think made me think about other people's perspective a lot more. 
than I had previously. And part of that could have just been age. It happened in my early 20s and your brain doesn't fully form until you're 25. And it's pretty hard to see outside of yourself when you're in your like late teens, early 20s. So some of that could have just been age growing up more. But I definitely think it made me try and more empathetic and try and understand other people's perspectives more than I maybe had previously. Yeah. What would be your biggest piece of advice for someone who's going through PTSD right now? Be um, I would definitely say, and I don't know if this would be as helpful for everyone or if this is just the way that my brain has always worked, <laughs> understanding the processes really did help me because it demystified instead of feeling like this overwhelming force is like overtaking you and controlling you and there's no there's nothing you can do about it or no logic or anything when you start getting a, a, a like a PTSD attack understanding on like a physical chemical neurological level what was happening really gave me like a roadmap to get through those experiences um, where I was like, if, okay, if I can recognize that my body is doing this, then next it's going to do this. And that I could kind of, instead of it just feeling like this mysterious, overwhelming force, um, that would kind of come and you had no idea how long it was going to stay or how bad it was going to get, or, you know, if there was going to be flashbacks or if there wasn't going to be flashbacks. And some of that obviously is still, you don't know for sure, but just having an understanding of the physiology was very helpful for me. And then really one of the most helpful things ever was when that crisis counselor did say, every time you start to feel better, your brain is going to feel comfortable releasing a little bit more of the trauma that it's been protecting you from. Uh, and so it's going to feel like a setback, but it's actually progress. And eventually there's going to be nothing left that your brain has been it's going to have let out all the poison, basically, and you will be, you know, obviously PTSD is a thing that stays with you forever, but mine is not active in the way that it was for years. You know, my brain has kind of gotten out all of the stored trauma <laughs> that I've yeah. dealt with it. And now there are obviously things that will always make me feel a little bit, you know, uncomfortable, but it isn't like an active condition in the way that it was at the beginning. For me, that was very helpful. I would say try and, as much as you can, obviously understanding that you're in a distressed place where it's hard to articulate things, but tell people things like what is freaking you out. Even if it seems weird or small or stupid, if it's things like somebody moved and they didn't tell you you were going to move, that can feel like you're being, you know, really demanding or something. But letting Mm -hmm. people know what's hurting you is the only way that they can stop it. Now, there is kind of a double-edged sword to that in that if you tell people to not do something that is so second nature to them that they, it's not something they think about, and you say, this is like triggering for me, it sets off like my panic, my hypervigilance. Um, can you not do it or can you say something about it? And then once you've taken that step to be vulnerable to say that and then they do it anyways, it can make it worse Like it can make you feel then personally attacked by them and not just coincidentally, even though the logical part of your brain totally understands that that's something that they did without even thinking about it because it's so, you know, second nature to them. But the only way that people can possibly maybe not do the things that are really triggering for you is if you tell them about them. And so even though that can be really hard, it can also be very helpful. Um, Do you think that any good 
art or content has come out of you having PTSD? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like uh, the one play that I was telling you about that was all of the kids at the movie theater that was going under. Mm -hmm. um, well, not kids. They were all in their mid to late 20s. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. now that I'm, you know, a, a patriarch in my 30s, it feels like kids. But um, <laughs> the, one of the main characters of that, if it was a very ensemble piece, but if there was a main character, it was somebody who had PTSD from a sexual assault and she was contemplating trying to start dating again. Um, mm -hmm. But also just that anytime you go through, and I hate the narrative, right, that you have to suffer to make good art. Um, yeah. I think that it's incredibly dangerous and toxic. And while, yes, suffering can produce great art, it doesn't exclusively produce great art. And a lot of times people with um, mental difficulties, when those are acute, have a lot of trouble creating. Like, I didn't create anything mm -hmm. for about two years when it was really bad because your body is in such an emergency mode that you can't make anything. But on the other hand, I think any human experience gives you more to draw off of artistically. So any yeah. more that you've yeah. explored yourself and your emotions or the world or other people gives you more stuff to talk about and bring into your art. And I do think the whole process of having PTSD has made me a much more empathetic person. And that has definitely impacted my art. So a lot of my writing, I mean, partially because I didn't write much before the PTSD and I've written a lot after it. So it's hard to know how much of my art was, you know, this or not this mm -hmm. before. But the little bit that I did try to work when I was younger was much more, it was much less about the internal life of the characters than my stuff was after and during the PTSD. Sure. It was more kind of like a story, more action oriented about external things. And now my stuff is very driven by what is internally going on for characters. So. Yeah. Yeah. Growing up homeschool, did you feel any specific pressure to be any certain way? Because I know a lot of the people who homeschool their children do it out of religious reasons uh was there any pressure to conform in that way no um not not in that way i definitely felt pressure as a fact that um i've <laughs> i've always been very smart i technically have a genius <laughs> level iq and when you're a precocious homeschooled kid, because the images yeah. that uh, people have of homeschoolers is either that you're a religious fanatic or your parents are a religious fanatic or that you're some kind of weird genius chained to their desk. Um, I am yeah. some kind of, <laughs> you know, there's always that pressure on kids that are smart at all. And also part of it was because I was never conditioned in a certain way, like I said, with peer pressure that... Um, you know, I was a big nerd who liked talking about the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead a lot when I was like seven and stuff like that. Because I was very uh, archaeology and anthropology have always been major passions of mine. Um, I didn't feel religious pressure. Both my parents come from very religious families. My mom's side um, are all like Midwestern Lutherans and my dad's side are all Mexican oh, Roman Catholic. For sure. So there was but neither of my parents were religious when they had us. So they're both kind of agnostic mm -hmm to some degree, um, they definitely thought that there was problems with both of the organized religions that they grew up in. And they basically mm -hmm. wanted my sister and I to be free to believe whatever we believed. So we were always welcome. You know, they didn't 
particularly believe in any sort of organized religious structure, but we were always welcome to explore that and believe whatever we wanted. I think more pressure came from the fact that like, like I started college when I was 16. Oh, wow. And there's a lot of like, (laughs) I did not (laughs) pressure and guilt in your later life when you feel like you were always told that you were smart and talented. Mm -hmm. And then you feel like you have not succeeded in manifesting that adequately, you know, of like living up to your potential. (laughs) Do you still feel that way? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. I And part of this is just being a millennial, right? Because a lot of the sure. things that we were told to do with our lives don't really exist for us anymore. <laughs> like, mm. I have one friend who was able to do all the benchmarks of go to college, get a good job with benefits, meet somebody, buy a house, get married, have a baby, right? Like, yeah. that whole structure of adulthood, I only know one person who's successfully done it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It was because she went into academia, which still has a lot of those things. Um, So some of it is just feeling like, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I'm not a successful adult because all of the hallmarks for successfully adulting don't really exist for my generation very much anymore. But also the fact that while I do feel like I do a lot of things that have a lot of value and I'm a very creative person and I'm good at things. I do feel that the level of expectations that people had for me as like a genius, <laughs> mm-hmm. I do feel like I've, you know, fall short of those sometimes. That is something that I struggle with, uh, trying not to feel like that and appreciate the things that I do do for the value that they have and, and try and push myself to do more things and fully use all of the capacities of my brain, which I don't always do, but you know, that all makes sense. Um, thanks so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks you. for having me on. I think it's great to have a show where people can talk about, you know, neuro non-typical and mental health issues because we are weirdly uptight about them in this culture. So I think it's a great thing that you're doing. Yeah, not me.